You're listening to CIUT. Not only the sound of our city, but the voices of our city. Have a beautiful day. Brothers and sisters, cats and chicks, Clayton Book Realty is here to give you the deal of the century, daddy. It's time to get down to it. Clayton, what are you doing? Don't you know I do all the screaming around here? <laughs> I'm so sorry, Dr. Meth. I just get so excited. I love your show and CIUT so much. There's no other radio station like it. Well, that is true. But you know what you have to tell our listeners is pretty amazing as well. Absolutely. Listeners, when you buy, sell, or lease your next property with me, Clayton Book, broker with PSR Brokerage, I'm donating 5% to CIUT on your behalf. Find out more at movewithclay.com. From the roots up, CIUT 89.5 FM, Toronto. Well, good morning and welcome to the Radical Reverend show here on CIUT. FM, 89.5 FM. My name is Christine Smaller. I'm the temp here, holding down the station while Sherry is off for the summer. And today we have such a great and such a relevant, such a perfect show. Uh, we are focusing today on student journalism and the impact that student journalism has on not just university and college campuses, but the cities and the communities in the world around them. And I'm so glad to have two fantastic guests who can speak so well about uh, student journalism here in Toronto. First, we have Riley Mormon, who of course is the producer of this show, and you have heard him many times before. Uh, Riley here is producing at CIUT, has his own show, and is quite knowledgeable about all things journalism, as well as many other topics as well. Just ask him and you'll see. And our second guest, who is also producing here on the Radical Reverend Show, is Alice Boyle. Now, Alice is the features editor at the Varsity newspaper here at University of Toronto. So we're going to start off just by, I just want to ask both of you, you know, what it is that you do, what it is about each of the mediums in which you work that is unique. But first, Riley, I wanted to go back to uh, a statistic that you mentioned a couple weeks ago about the number, the percentage of people in, Tor in Toronto who are students. Do you recall that? You said that it's Tor Toronto is full of students. There's lots of students here. Oh, yes. I can't remember the exact figure, but it was an absolutely staggering like, I think it was proportion. 20%, and we can definitely do a fact check on that for yeah, next Yeah, there's something time. like five or six colleges just in the city of Toronto, That's not even right. the GTA alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the campuses of U of T, which is a, a, just an incredibly large yeah. university. There's something like 60,000 people a day who walk through St. George campus on their way to class. And that's one of three campuses. Yeah. yeah, great. Well, Riley, why don't we start with you? Do you want to tell me and the listeners here 
about your role at CIUT and you know what it is what it is about radio that speaks to you yeah so I've been a producer here for about the last year um, I've been producing this show primarily I'm also on the critic circle every Saturday morning and I have my own show um, I've always been interested in student radio I've I grew up listening to a lot of uh, university radio, a lot of university radio music, and every single morning, CBC. Um, I've always been interested in journalism, and I think it's really interesting that, or I think it's really interesting the way we present different news topics and how that shapes our opinion on those topics. Right. So I've been trying to get very involved with different uh, newspapers and journalism and just things around campus. Fantastic. Fantastic. And Alice the features editor of the Varsity. I remember when Sherry and I first met you when you came in to start working here on the show. Uh, you said that you were the features ed editor of the Varsity. And we were just, you know, we are kind of so impressed. We didn't even know what to say. That must be a pretty big role. Do you want to tell us about it and how, how you feel about it? Yeah, so just uh, for like a little bit of context, a feature-length article is basically like about 2,200 words at least. That's kind of your sweet spot. Um, and basically it's kind of like just long form reporting. So when a news just when a news article just talks about like the facts, features kind of dives in deeper. Right. Um, and like it's kind of a good medium to questions the, question the institutions that you live with. Um, and as a features editor, I edit um, a feature that a student writes um, every week um, during the school year and like whenever articles come in during the summer. And right. um, I edit um, two magazines, one per semester during the school year. So I should pitch to that. And then- Yeah, yeah, um, tell us about the magazines. Oh yeah, they're basically like more kind of creative nonfiction than just like straight up reported features. Um, we've published poetry as well. Um, just like mostly like nonfiction and poetry, but it's just kind of a more creative outlet for like potential contributors to like, you know, talk right in yeah nice nice so what's uh what's a story that sticks out for you um like something that I've written yeah either that or what you've edited yeah so I think to this day probably like my best work is um a feature I did for um our indigenous issue right um and I spent like three months kind of like researching and trying to talk to like indigenous members of the U of T community. And um, I kind of did like a long article about how like even after uh, the calls to action, um, there's still a lot of tokenism on our campus um, right. and how that kind of manifests in like classrooms and just like regular interactions even between students who mean well and profs who like don't understand that they're doing something wrong. That was big. Or don't care. Yeah, that too. Or doing it intentionally. I don't. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which happens. We're not going to mention Jordan Peterson at all in this show or any other show that I'm involved with. But uh, anyway, yeah. So you're referring to the, the 94 calls to action from the Truth and Re Reconciliation yeah. Commission. Yeah. Oh, great. Wonderful. So to the both of you, from your perspectives, why... Why? Why is student journalism so important to... Let's start first with students on campus. If I can just jump in here, I think it's uh, really important for both training new journalists, obviously. Right. And our other producer here, Muzna, is a CBC intern for the summer, actually. And she's at the journalism program at Starborough. Great. Um, at the U of T Starborough campus. Um, I think it's really important for that. But it's also really important because I think a lot of uh, students are much more willing to do 
investigations and write about things that they care about and not necessarily the whole public would care about. They're not necessarily constrained by financial motives or just the initiative and the momentum of big journalism machineries, if that makes sense. Right. So can you give us an example of what might be, you know, a, a topic, a subject that's covered by student journalism that would be completely ignored by media outside? Yeah. So uh, a good one is the uh, Divest Vic protests that have happened. They got about one small article in the CBC, but the vast majority of the reporting that happened on that was from university um radio stations and from newspapers on this campus and that was a really important protest for students can you tell us about the protest what was it about yeah so because of uh u of t's federated system every college except for ones added after like the 1960s have their own financial system it's incredibly confusing even to me and i've been here for three years as an innis alumni i guess that doesn't apply to me right yeah um <laughs> but each college has control over its own finances, which means that they can invest in whatever they want. In this case, it was fossil fuels, and Victoria College was bequeathed an oil well in Saskatchewan and had still been using some of their about $9 million that they get from rent from uh, the strip mall that they run, which has famous things like Dior, and there's a lot of very fancy jewelry places that rent from Victoria College, which we don't really know about. Right. Um, and they were using a lot of that money to invest in fossil fuels. And as the rest of U of T divested only very recently, um, Vic students occupied the main administrative uh, quarters of Vic in order to bring light to the issue and get them to divest. Right, which was important to students and to the wider community in Toronto, in Canada, really, and it wouldn't have been covered except for student journalism. What a great example. So, Alice, what about you? Um, I guess, like, I'm going to just give an example of, like, something that um, has really struck me uh, in our coverage. I guess, like, the article that got me into journalism was probably, like, one of the most, like, thorough investigative features that the Varsity had ever published. It was about systemic racism in Trinity College. Okay. Um, and, like, not only about, like, the Episcopon, like, their kind of secret society <laughs> right. uh, that like they're not affiliated with anymore, but a lot of students are still a part of. Um, and their families are, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but not just that, like it had, it. you know, a lot of students found that like that kind of like discrimination permeated throughout the college itself. Um, and two varsity alumni um, had reported on this uh, in three parts and me, as a first-year student, when I read that article, I was like, oh, my God, I can do this. Like, I, wow. can, I can make this type of change, yeah. Wow. So that was like your aha moves. Because you were saying that you, before we started the show here, that you were saying that you had not thought about going into journalism. So was that kind of your aha moment? Was that? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I didn't know it was kind of, like, features was, like, a way to tell a story. Yeah. Um, news to me felt too, like, rigid. And I wanted to like get to know my interview subjects more and to be able to kind of tell a story better. So, right, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. So when you said, "Oh wow, I can do this," what like what was that? Was that about having an impact on the world? Um, not so much an impact on the world, but just like this is another way for me to tell a story, I guess. Right. Um, and a way to, um, I guess, like have people empathize with issues that they're not super knowledgeable on. Right. And um, that long form gives the 
opportunity to really connect both with the topics and the subjects as well as the readers. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And is that when you decided to go into journalism? Um, it took me another year to drum up the courage <laughs> to do that. Sure. Yes. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Oh, wow. This is the Radical Reverence Show here on CIUT FM 89.5 on your dial and also as a podcast uh, up later today. And I'm Christine Smaller, the temp here, and I'm excited to be here with Riley and Alice talking about student journalism. Let's shift a little bit now. Uh, we've kind of got a little bit into it about university politics, which uh, is important on any campus because it has such an impact and influence on students and everyone else who's on the campus. But at a university like, university like the University of Toronto, I mean, the impact and influence of what's going on here politically is huge. Huge. So, Riley, do you want to start us off? What do you want to tell us about about politics here at U of T? Yeah, I just think politics at this university are really important, and they're very, very understated. And I think even in this university, the amount of people that actually read the newspapers or listen to the radio is it's very, very small. And I found a lot of the news gets around just by talking about it with like your friends or if you're at a university cafe, that kind of thing. Um, but it is very important. The University of Toronto is the largest landowner in the city of Toronto. Okay. They are one in the top three employers in the city. And obviously, they own a massive swath of downtown. And they have lots of influence. And it's just really, really important to be able to look at those issues. And even if they're student issues, if they're not student issues, obviously, Divest Vic was just about the climate emergency as a whole. It didn't necessarily have to do with just students. But there, right, is, yeah. there is a lot of implicit power when you give somebody to mark you and to teach you. There's a lot of implicit power that you give them over yourself. And as we've seen, there's been some abuses of power in a lot of cases. There's been racism and there's been sexual assault allegations on this campus from profs towards students. And a lot of those issues have only... From profs towards students? From profs towards students. And you wouldn't hear it in the general media. Right. Because it would be considered too niche of a subject yeah. for a lot of, like, for CBC to report. And that's not their fault. I'm not saying it's their fault at all. Because um, they want to appeal to as large of an audience as possible. But it is really important when you're sending your kid to university that you know your prof isn't going to sexually harass them and make racist comments and call them slurs in the middle of class even if they're not trying to do so harmfully which i still doubt but intention doesn't influence impact exactly and a lot of these things have only come to light when students have talked about them with each other and decided hey you know i could write an article for the varsity or for the strand which is victoria college's newspaper and a lot of these things only appear and get actually brought to light when people decide to write for these kind of uh, university publications. Right. So is there anything going on, you know, right now in university politics that people should know about? Oh, goodness, there is so much going on. Um, there has been an issue recently with the University of Toronto um, Student Union, okay. which has... Tell us about it. Yeah, so they've um, waived the right of students to vote in proxy, which is to say, hand someone they trust their right to vote, and so they can still be represented if they work you know, a second-time job or they're a commuter. Um, they've waived that right, so in these six-hour meetings, the meeting that decided that was eight hours, actually, um, if you wanted to stay for those entire eight hours and have your voice heard, you would have to be there on campus, which is not very likely for a lot of commuter students. Yeah, so is there a class issue here? I don't know. I think there's a very 
distinct divide between people who live on campus and even people who live just a few blocks away. Or if you're commuting, I knew someone who commuted from Barrie four times a week. Sure. She's not going to be no. able to make it people to those. People with families, yeah. people with three jobs, you know, yeah. they're not going to be able to to be in person. Yeah, and I think there is, it's not necessarily a distinctly class issue, but there is a certain undercurrent of that, having enough free time to want to vote and caring enough about these small, minute administrative uh, decisions in the University of Toronto, yeah. like student unions. That's so important. I was just thinking too, if like with the CBC report on it, if they, on these issues, if they looked at the university as just a very large employer, like as a company that has that kind of impact on the city and that many people. Yeah. Can like, you imagine if like an employer union that represents yeah. 60,000 students decided, well, if you're sick, you're just not going to be able to vote. Right. That would like, that would throw, that would make hands the throw CBC in the The CBC would street. definitely yeah. report on that. Yeah. yeah. And oh, sorry. I interrupted. No, you. no. Go, go, finish oh, your thought, please. Say, um, other important like university things. There's been a lot of corruption and embezzlement recently, unfortunately. <laughs> The Arts and Science Student Union, which represents twenty to 30,000 students, has missed a couple million dollars from their spreadsheets, and they haven't actually handed in a financial statement for about five years now, which is not fantastic. So it's funny you say corruption and embezzlement. Those are pretty strong terms. It definitely describes what you're saying. So why isn't there, why don't I know about that? You know, a couple million dollars. I mean, I'm a student here as well. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the... I think a lot of the problem is is these institutions have been empowered to, you know, report their finances. And if they don't, it's, you know, hey, you should really do that next year kind of thing. Right. But if they don't report their finances, how are we going to know that stuff's missing? Right. If they're not reporting, there's no severe penalties and there's no third-party investigations for any of these institutions, whether it be clubs or student unions or even faculty associations. There's right. very, yeah. very few independent uh, audits, and the vast majority of them happen from uh, the university administration itself, which if you're part of the university administration and you're auditing yourself. You're investigating yourselves. Yeah, lack exactly. of transparency, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Alice, do you want to jump in here? Um, yeah, like I kind of want to add on to this, not in terms of just like St. George student politics, but university policies in general that impact a lot of students. So like I know... Uh, we had our like sexual violence policy kind of reviewed uh, in the last school year. And I know um, the student organization pairs had a lot of issues with it because um, the university, again, like investigated itself right. on these policies. Um, and there are also just a lot of like issues with our like reporting system in general. It's very it's very police centered. <laughs> Okay, um, say more about that, yeah. Yeah, so basically, like, they changed the policy, I think, to um, basically anytime you go to the SVPSC, which is the Sexual Violence uh, like Prevention Center, um, to report sexual harassment or sexual assault. Um, and it's, it's kind of the only avenue uh, where you can go to report for and have any, like, official action done. So okay. if you want, like, the person's class schedule changed or if you want this person to, like, be officially distanced from you, you have to go through that channel. Um, so I just, so just want to clarify. So you have to go to the U – like, this is, like, a para-police department? Like, this is a security uh, No, department? this is just U of T's, like, sexual violence um, right. like reporting and prevention center. And our students – so what about stu – obviously, students could go to the police outside the University of Toronto, but it sounds like they're being encouraged to, 
to go through this system. Is that right? Um, yeah, just because like it's not like necessarily legal action, but the policy got changed so that campus safety would know about the report right. if you chose to report instead of disclose. Right. Yeah. So uh, Paris wasn't too happy about that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so was was it reported on? Um, yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, we did a report when the um, when the policy got reviewed and uh, Paris had like a protest, um, I think, in the the student building, like right? The student center, yeah. Right. And has there been any action taken to improve the process? <laughs> Not that I know of. Right. This is a pretty recent change, so um, which I guess we'll just have to see next school year. Yeah. Yeah. And so is that something you'd be you're going to be monitoring, um, or not necessarily you, but uh, the varsity? Yes. And the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Great. Well, this is the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm Christine here with Alice and Riley. Now, I want to know, um, what are the challenges that that students who are involved in student journalism face? Um, I could probably jump in on this yeah, one. Yeah, let's hear. Uh, well, I have no work-life balance. Okay. Just, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think like a lot of it. Um, I. Th- it, I mean, it's a really similar thing that like I think a lot of journalists face. Uh, just in the figure journalism industry. Sure. Um, there's a lot of burnout. Um, nobody has work-life balance, and I think like it's really hard drawing that boundary between like a story and people that you do care about, um, and like your own health, right? Um, especially when you're doing interviews. Like, interviews are my favorite part of the job. Right. Because I get to step out of myself for a little bit, and, like, get out of my own head and actually listen to someone else tell their story. But it's like when the when the topic you're covering is stressful, it's like unpaid therapy. Like, oh. when you're listening to them talk to you, you're, like, how you're stressing over, like, you know, the topic that you're talking about, how you're going to ethically ethically cover it, how you're going to take care of, like, the interviewee when you're done with the interview. Like, all that stuff you got to take into account if you're, if you want to do this ethically. Right. Um, and it kind of does, like, take a big toll. And I've had to take a lot of, like, long naps after, like, two or three interviews. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's exhausting. So what are the ethical considerations in a situation like that? Um, so usually it's good practice to, like, have an interviewee like ask them if they know like have any like avenues for kind of taking care of themselves or like de-stressing after the interview um if we're talking about something that's really sensitive or really like heavy um we also grant anonymity um on a case-by-case basis if the person's job or safety or like you know uh, is concerned or if like the matter is incredibly private um, and what's the criteria for that, and who decides whether or not to grant anonymity? Uh, the varsity's editor in chief decides whether or not to grant right. anonymity, and you gotta go to them and like just present the case. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What What other challenges are there? Uh, sorry, I just wanted to jump in on the anonymity thing because a big problem that I know the McGill um, student newspaper has been challenging or has been facing recently um, a challenge they've had is that they've recently been sued actually oh Um, because obviously everyone there's an amateur reporter this is not their professional job most of them haven't had real training Um, and they accidentally published somebody's name inside an article which 
had sexual assault allegations in it. And obviously, I'm not going to say any names here. Um, and all of these were allegations, which were further, they were disproven in court. Um, but in an article in which people are supposed to remain anonymous, obviously publishing somebody's name with sexual assault allegations is going to have terrible repercussions. And I think that's a problem student journalists face is that they have a lot of issues they care about because they are amateurs and because they're not working for large companies, but they also are going to make mistakes that large companies aren't. Right. And, you know, so this, this brings up an issue of like, there's a diversity of students who, who are involved with student journalism, right? So, you know, way back in the day, I was in journalism at Ryerson. I was in before the name changed, even before it was a university, it was Ryerson Polytechnic. And so as as students within the journalism degree program, you know, our training was quite thorough, but we were also working with and competing with students from other, you know, departments and disciplines in uh, the the school who didn't have the same training. So can you speak a little bit about that? Like, is it is it more challenging for those of you who aren't necessarily in a journalism program to know how to treat those issues? You know, like the ethical issues, you know, when, when to make a case for someone to be anonymous? Um, at the varsity, we have really thorough guidelines. Um, I think it's just because it's been around long enough that We've been sued a couple times as well. Um, so we we have really thorough policy on like journalistic ethics for the varsity, um, but also like our operating policy acts as like kind of a way to um, like essentially stop us from like harming people, harming our sources and preventing us from getting sued. Like I was, um, my colleague um, was writing an investigation on U of T's um, like labor ethics uh, for our merch. Uh, she basically found out that like a lot of U of T's like um, ethics uh, labor policies were kind of performative because in the countries that our clothing is manufactured legally, a lot of those policies can't get enacted. Right. Um, That's and, an important finding. Yeah. Um, but basically, there was one claim um, that she had made, basically saying, "Oh, like their labor, po like there was there has been no change to the labor policy um, between." this date of review and this date of review. And what I had to do to prevent getting sued from libel was pull up both of these documents and read them word for word and see if like any punctuation has changed. And we went home at like midnight that night. <laughs> so um, yeah, just that's kind of a long-winded way of saying there's kind of ways to prevent right. it, but yeah. um, and we, we kind of do try our best. Oh, of course, yeah. of course, yeah. And it just shows the amount of work that goes into especially these features. Absolutely. Yeah. Any other challenges? Like, how do you feel? Are you encouraged? Like, are you able to write the stories that you want to write? Are you able to take the perspective that you want to take? Like, how, how does that work in terms of interacting with your editors and others that are through the gatekeepers? Um, sorry. Um, I guess I, I usually get my pitches picked up. Um, if they're reported features. Yeah. Um, and also like, what surprised me is that like a lot of students really do want to talk. Okay. Yeah. Um, so like, for example, like in the faculty of engineering, um, NSOC kind of had um, like an insane election process. That's their, like the engineering society, that's kind of their student governing body. Um, and basically um, someone who was unhappy with it 
tipped off the varsity, but they had done it too late in the process for us to kind of like make a reasonable case for covering the story. But it was just really surprising because the faculty of engineering doesn't really read the varsity. And I was just pleasantly surprised that people actually did want us to report on their stuff. Um, and it was the same for uh, like QP3902, which is our TA union. Um, they really wanted to talk as well when uh, the university kind of like was trying to take away a lot of their health coverage. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that very well. Yeah, yeah. Riley, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, I I know a few people who've written for the varsity and for other newspapers around campus. And unfortunately, sometimes there's a lack of editor um, and writer communication. And I don't know how that's solved. I'm not sure it's an issue that can be solved when you're working with amateur, and I don't mean amateur in any negative sense at all. I just mean a non-professional, someone who's not being paid, right. someone who's just sharing things that are important to them. Um, because student journalists are very skilled. Like the two yeah. of you, you know, have enormous uh, skills and experiences that inform all of your work for sure. But it, it is a, an important distinction between a professional and non-professional journalist, I think. Yeah, and I'm just not sure if there is a way you can balance those two. It might just be something that's always going to be in conflict between um, reporting on very niche stories that are still important to people while not editing out and letting the machinery of journalism and editors um, kind of disrupt those stories. I'm not sure if there is a solution to that, but it's a very interesting problem and one that constantly needs to be reevaluated. Right, and kept you know front and center to ensure you know some sort of balance. Yeah. Well, we're going to, in the next half of the show, we're going to turn to some more wider issues in journalism and how they connect to student journalism. And one of the things that I'm hoping we can talk about is how you convey truth in journalism, whether it's on a university campus or in a major newspaper. So let's take a break, a musical break. We're going to hear a little Billy Bragg. It says here from 1987, but still, I think, quite applicable. This is the Radical Reverend Show on CIUT 89.5, and we'll, we'll be back in a few minutes.
two sides to every story. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We are talking about all things journalism from a student perspective. And I'm here with Riley and Alice, who are both student journalists, amazing ones as well. So we're going to shift now to, you know, issues that are that all journalists are facing. So the first thing we want to talk about is what is truth? And how do you convey it through journalism? You have, you have 30 seconds each to solve that problem. Alice, um, you want to go first? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just going to echo what my English prof say, uh, that truth is but a group of moving metaphors and not actually a thing. But no, never mind. That's not what truth I is. Like it. Um, I like it. I like it. But I guess, like, from a s- journalism standpoint, um, it's... I found that not editorializing and kind of lining up your facts in a certain way makes the story hit harder um, instead of just like kind of showing your own opinion. Um, And I think that might just be like features editor bias because we've like, you know, our common editor is amazing and she probably thinks something differently, but 
Yeah. That makes sense. And it's, you know, I think that that connects to something we were talking about a little bit earlier when you were talking about how students really want to talk. And that journal, one of the, I mean, I think one of the, you know, prime functions that journalism serves in society is to give voice to the voiceless. So if you're talking about, you know, I mean, I think neutral can be a challenging term, but when you're talking about, you know, telling the story in people's own words and giving voice to those who might not necessarily be heard otherwise, that makes a lot of sense. Is that what you're finding? Um, yeah. And also just like something that I've really benefited from, um, from not having kind of like a formal journalism edu education is that um, I think, you know, kind of, I think journalism is shifting out of this as a whole, but like the older kind of like standard was to equally question both parties that you were reporting on. But as a student, like if um, if I'm talking about like a student organization complaining about U of T, like say this is just a hypothetical um, being like racist or homophobic, I would not be questioning those two parties at the same level. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> Um, especially because U of T as an institution is so much bigger, as Riley mentioned, than the student organization that's hypothetically calling them out. Um, I just, I wouldn't feel like that would be very ethical of me to question those two parties equally. Right, and that, that also connects with giving voice to the voiceless, whereas, you know, Univ the University of Toronto has PR, they yeah. can spin anything that they, they want, absolutely. Alice, I think that you are getting to one of the most important points, not just about journalism, but about how we see the world and how we communicate uh, about the world. And that's like the whole issue of subjectivity. So again, like going back to when I was in journalism school, we absolutely were trained in, you know, how to how to generate the balanced view. And I think that Ryerson, you know, Metropolitan um, now, they were actually kind of the radical journalism school as opposed to some others that were, you know, across North America. But still, that was the holy grail, the gold, gold standard that we had to present the balanced view, the objective news. And I think that over the last uh, decades, but even over just, the, you know, we think about the last three, four years, that idea of objectivity has completely been destroyed. Riley, I see you nodding. Would you like to, to say more about that? Yeah, I just want to add, um, I think the work that journalists do is very important and that objectivity has been slanted in a way, but certainly with social media and with the internet, we have given everyone a platform to speak at equal volumes, which can be problematic if some people don't have the kind of journalistic training or the just they didn't take the time to critically think about what they're publishing as they're publishing it or sometimes unfortunately are maliciously publishing something that is deliberately incorrect in order to feed a narrative that they want fed i do think and this is something that we've talked about a lot in my degree which is history and anthropology which is just journalism but for things that have already happened significantly long ago um there is that kind of tension between we want everyone to be objective as possible and we want to find the truth but we also have to take in mind that trying to do that alienates the people we're trying to get heard and it can alienate listeners unfortunately in the case of like a radio show and presenting yourself as this paragon of truth and objectivity in a sea of subjectivity is unfortunately i don't think a realistic way to do news and to do journalism 
I think it's a much more honest way instead to state your biases, to confront them as you write articles and to publish those out loud. It's not a shameful thing to say that you're biased. I'm an incredibly biased person, as we all are. And I think it's important to say that instead of presenting yourself as a truth of object, uh, the truth and objectivity, even if you have had more training and confronting that, it's still very important, at least to me, um, in order to actually present things with the kind of reverence and that the real truth of the matter, which is that if I'm reporting on like an indigenous issue, I'm not indigenous. And it's important for me to say that outright. It's important for me to say I have not been raised in a, a reservation. I don't speak an indigenous language, all of these things. And I think it can be incredibly problematic when reporters try to be objective, objective, I'm using air quotes here, um, by just stating the facts of a case and not stating why the facts or the emotions that go along with those facts. Well, even whether facts can be objective or not is a question. And I think you're bringing up too about, you know, diversity, the necessity for diversity in journalism, because, you know, as you know, if you're a non-Indigenous person reporting on Indigenous issues, um, then, you know, maybe what needs to happen is that, you know, some people need to step aside so that uh, people who have more knowledge. And also, I mean, you know, I'm suggesting that there's homogeneity in Indigenous cultures, not at all, right? So that that's important to say as well. So this brings up two things that I think about a lot when I'm talking, when I'm thinking about the news is, uh, you know, critical thinking. Can the news help us learn critical thinking? Is that perhaps one of the moral responsibilities of journalism? Um, and if, if journalism cannot teach critical thinking, is it journalism's role to do that critical thinking for those of us who maybe don't engage in that on a regular basis? I feel like um, it kind of teaches people critical thinking if it's done right. Um, I'm going to use like uh, QB's, uh, I guess, like discussions with U of T as an example of their health coverage. Um, that was a lot of, uh, I, I did kind of the reporting on that feature. Um, and let's just set the stage a little bit more for that. Oh, so this yeah. is the TAs union, is it? Yes. So the TAs um, were in a strike position and their main issue was around, I mean, it was a number of things, but around benefits and other things. So, so you were reporting on that. Yeah, they weren't in a strike position per se, uh, but they were engaged in some pretty like heated talks because okay. U of T was getting rid of their health coverage. Um, they were, they were going to save about $40,000 uh, or 40, no, $400,000. Um, I'm actually not going to say the number because I forgot the number and I don't want to present don't be sued. false facts. <laughs> um, but basically, um, cutting that health care was um, basically putting TAs in a position where they lost a lot of funding for mental health supports. And that was really important for the TAs because they're probably one of our most overworked kind of populations at U of T. And Reporting on that required a lot of me looking at numbers and looking through insurance policy and looking through how U of T covers TA unions and kind of lining up those facts like helped, I guess, hopefully helped the reader um, critical think, critically think about how 
U of T was treating their TA union. And, and the complexity of the issue, right? Exactly. I think that's part of like you know teaching and nurturing critical engagement is helping people scratch the surface and see what's underneath. It sounds like you did you did exactly that. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Riley, what about you? Yeah, I think it's a very, very interesting problem. Um, and there's an anthropological concept, which is still being developed and still absolutely evolving. But unfortunately, there's been a long history, and this is true also in journalism, of accepting whoever says something first as just accepting their facts as the, the reality and not questioning that reality and trying to force every other fact into that reality. So unfortunately, Canada has a very long history of signing treaties with one person from a nation and then saying, oh, that applies to everyone because someone signed it. He was a representative. But if you are signing something, if you're reporting on something, if you're doing anthropological research, it is your job to find out the people you need to talk to. It's not their job to come streaming at you and to say, I'm the representative for this community. You need to actually do the work. The onus is on you. If you're trying to publish something, if you say something to somebody else, it's your responsibility and the onus is on you to make sure your facts are correct, to make sure your figures are correct, and to make sure you're talking to the correct people or actually challenging the narrative. In the, TA, uh, in the QP teacher strike, which wasn't a strike, but that kind of thing, the there was a lot of and this was even in not necessarily like right-wing media so not uh fairly conservative like toronto star but in some of the more left-wing media or the cbc which heralds itself as this kind of paragon of being unbiased and being objective accepting the fact that there can be something as an illegal strike when just accepting that reality gives power to one side and I think a lot of journalists, unfortunately, haven't really confronted this yet, is that choosing to report on something and just accepting the reality of one side over another gives power to that side, even if oh, you don't mean to. legitimizes, validates. Well, I mean, putting in writing often makes things happen, right? It's almost like magic. Like, you know, magic, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. unfortunately, it is, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you say something like, and we talked about this a little last week, but... If you report that these are the top six people for election in the city, I guarantee you there will be a significant amount of less votes for every other candidate because people will have read that report and said, oh, okay, so it's not worth voting for anyone else. Just by reporting on something, you're going to impact it in the future. And it's really important, I think, to recognize that and to say when you don't know things. Like, if you were reporting on the top six, you can say, here's my opinion on these top six. But the self-disclosed exactly. bias, yeah. And that's what I was trying to get at earlier. It's just Important. that, like, it's just being truthful with yourself and actually recognizing, like, here's my top six because all of them have had former government positions. That's a dramatically different statement than saying, here's the six people who could get elected and the rest of these people you shouldn't vote for. And it's only a few more words, you know, because often the word count is given as an excuse to, you know, to totally strip an article from you know depth and and breadth well friends if you're joining you're just joining us whether you're in your car or you're at home or somewhere else this is the radical reverend show i'm christine smaller and i'm here with alice boyle and riley mormon okay alice riley i want to just name some challenges in journalism and i want you to give me a brief response to each okay you ready 
has the first one. The flood of opinion and false information on the internet has ruined journalism forever. That's a really definitive statement. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm really scared of getting sued for libel constantly, but I don't make those types of statements. I'd say it's like made it harder to report on stuff. Like when I talk to my parents, um, it's a lot of, I've, I've heard a lot more inflammatory language surrounding media um, and like what's seen as, um, I guess like, you know, like what's kind of, I know we've been like talking about the word objectivity, but what's seen as more objective reporting or like not straight up reporting lies that like kind of, you know, fulfill someone's confirmation bias makes them really uncomfortable and they start lashing out. And so I feel like, um, you know, inflammatory stuff on the internet kind of does make the job harder, but that doesn't really stop me from doing it. Like, I, I love what I do. It makes it more important almost, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Riley, I'm going to give you another one. The economic model for news is broken. Ooh, that's a very, very interesting one. I think to some extent it is broken, and we've seen this. We've There's been a lot of talk around this, especially in the past 20 years since, like, the 24-hour news cycle. It might be the economic model. It might be the way we choose to participate in that economic model because all of these news organizations say they're like, we're beholden to the shareholders of our company and we have to do this or else somebody else will do this and we won't be able to and then we won't keep up. But I think as more pressures are there, you have to, it's even more important for you to like cite your sources if the internet is pumping out lies all the time it's even more important to check your sources make sure the things you're saying are true or we just talk like we're on twitter all the time where not a single thing is true and everyone just reads as rage bait and just makes us all feel bad no one goes to twitter and has a nice time it's true elon maybe well no he even seems more <laughs> angry than most it's of us true. most of the time I'm sure Threads is really upsetting him this week, for sure. Okay, here's another for both of you. The public does not care about quality journalism. Um, I think when I'm super burnt out, I think that, yeah, <laughs> especially in a student newspaper. Um, like, I think when I'm kind of like chest deep in a story and I'm like kind of mired in it uh, and I don't know my way out, uh, I do feel like that. Um, actually, right now I'm writing an article about um, kind of queer representation in STEM at U of T. And um, I was talking to the editor-in-chief about it, and I was just saying, hey, like, is this even worth writing? Because what if people call me, like, for lack of a better word, like a snowflake for caring about somebody's pronouns, which I'd like to say is incredibly important, um, and representation and um, kind of like not even just raising awareness, but just like respecting people's human rights is oh, really important. Oh, let's be clear. Pronouns are life and death. Yeah. Like they make the difference of life and death yeah. for, for people. And then a week later, Waterloo happened. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, oh, okay. I feel like I need to write this now. But um, there's that constant kind of self-doubt that I have of just like, what if no one cares? Like, why, why am I writing 2,200 plus words about like something that people are probably going to laugh at me for? <laughs> Right. I think that's, you know, I really appreciate you sharing that. And we'll just, you know, I'm sure most listeners know that the Waterloo situation was um, there was a gender studies class in which someone came in and uh, intentionally into the gender studies class and harmed people, uh, stabbed people. 
And yeah, I, that does make it worth it, right? Because the, you know that force um, that was represented by that violent and heinous act, that force is trying to shut down any other voices and perspectives. Yeah, um, I know my when I was talking about this article to the editor in chief, they said like you know when it comes to queer issues, like this is erasure is violence pretty much. Erasure leads it is. to violence and. Um, yeah, a week later, it happened. Like, they were right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Riley. I, that's, that was a very good point you said. And unfortunately, I think it is the tendency of all people involved in reporting, publishing, and journalism to feel that way, that the public doesn't actually care. And they're willing to take anything at face value. I don't think that's true. I think the public does care about quality journalism. I've met many people who've read an article and I've been talking to them. And obviously this is not all people. Some people are so entrenched in their view that a nuanced discussion isn't gonna help them in any way. But I've talked to lots of people and shown them articles and reading a different perspective in quality journalism that has sources, that has fact and is cited at every single opportunity really does help them understand issues in ways that they couldn't before. And I think the public generally does care especially when we're in an environment where I think a lot of the problem that has happening to today's society is humans are biologically um, made so that we accept whatever we read as true. Like just unconsciously, we're not saying everything's false at the first instinct. We see some things as false when we read certain words or we see the subtext of certain like tweets or whatever. Um, but we tend to think everything's true once we read it. We never read a news headline and think, oh, this is totally a lie. We go, oh, I'm sure they represented this in some way, but I don't know how, and I'm just gonna share the headline. We just need to accept everything as true, and I think that's why it's more important to prove that what you're saying is backed up by evidence, by science, by facts, or just say it's an opinion. And to have that flexibility, that open-mindedness, that critical engagement, um, that curiosity, that you know, empathetic, empathetic uh, interest in neighbor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I before we go any further, I just want to thank the two of you so much for the work that you do, and for all the long hours. And I want to tell you, it does absolutely matter. Your work is having an impact uh, far and wide that will have a long reach. So thank you for that. And so, what are your hopes? What, what's exciting to you? What, what do you want? If someone is, there's someone who's just coming into, so there's, there's, a, there's a person right now who is on campus doing a campus tour because they are starting at the University of Toronto in September and they're interested in journalism. What, what do you want to tell them? Uh, join the varsity. <laughs> that's, that's really biased, but um, in all seriousness, I think, um, at least something that I use to get people excited is honestly like the opportunity to get connected with your university community better. That's something that student journalism has really helped me and a lot of my colleagues do. Um, we have, I have friends now because I interviewed them and uh, I, you literally like reach these corners of the university that like you would not have had you not kind of like t cared about stuff they had to say or like the issues that these students, I guess, also care about. 
um, yeah, so I, I guess it's the opportunity to kind of tell stories in a different way, but also just to get to know more people and to listen to what they have to say. It's such a great reminder that grassroots journalism is really community making in action, yeah. right? It's community making, it's community building. Uh, such an important point that we forget, you know, in these days of, you know, the just being inundated with all sorts of forms of journalism. What are you excited about, Riley? Well, if there is someone on this campus, and I hope somebody who's coming to U of T is listening to this, first thing I'd want to say, don't buy the meal plans. They're a scam. You can just buy <laughs> food outside of the university, get the cheapest one, and then leave it. Second, and there's so much better food all around. Oh, it's so much. It just, it's a mess. Anyway, that's unrelated. But I want to... But important. Yeah. I wanted to just share um, that if you have a story to tell, you should tell it. You should work it with your friends. You should talk to them about it, and you should find a way to share it. I think that's what journalism is. It's the spirit that's continued since our Paleolithic age of us sitting around a campfire and telling each other stories about our lives, what's important to us. Don't feel like you have to share everything about your life, and certainly don't feel like you have to share something about your life bi-weekly for a newspaper. But you should feel empowered to tell your own stories and to find the stories of others that you can share. So important. Absolutely. And I just have to say, it's just, it's such a pleasure and a privilege to be here at CIUT being part of uh, this radio show. And I agree with so many of the things you said, and especially about, you know, having a voice, finding, you know, voices that may not be heard and community building. Absolutely. My name is Christine Smaller, and I am the temp here at the Radical Reverend Show. I'm going to be sitting here in front of the mic all summer long. And if you out there have anything that you would like to have discussed, explored, then get in touch with me and we will look into it. Maybe we can do a show on what's important to you. You can reach me at revcsmaller at gmail.com. That's R-E-V as in Victor, C, smaller at gmail.com. And we will see you next week.
Dr. Mouth's Rock and Roll Lunch Party is 